John uh, chapter 8, verses 2 through 12. So at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus strained up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's word. I'm Jordan. Uh, I'm an intern here with Hope Church, uh, and I'm really grateful to just get this chance to, to share from this text, uh, to explore this book of John together, and to, to really just talk about the ways Jesus is revealing himself in this text. Uh, so if you pay attention to the Christian calendar, we are currently in the season of Lent, which is the 40 days prior to Easter where, where Christians are kind of exploring the life of Jesus and waiting for him for his resurrection. Uh, the, this 40 days thing is, a, is kind of a biblical theme, this idea of waiting for 40 days or 40 years. It, it symbolizes this moment of preparation and readiness before a big event. 
in in scripture in scripture in Genesis we see Noah the the flood last for 40 days last week Ronaldo preached on Jesus's time in the wilderness he was there for 40 days the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years uh, but the preparation here is a little different than how we might be used to preparation because when we think of preparation we think four years of college to get ready for a career or like nine months of pregnancy before a new life is born in the world but the 40 days of Lent is different because what we're counting down to is the day is the Thursday before Easter which is the day before Good Friday right for New Year's we count down three two one happy New Year but for Lent we count down three two one Jesus is dead like that's that's kind of the end point of our preparation uh, it's so different from how we think about preparation in the world, where we're preparing, kind of building on things, going up. But in Lent, like our end point is this really hard, dark place. Uh, it's, it's what I love about the season of Lent. It's a time of wandering, uncertainty, and this kind of confusion about where we end up. And it represents life. It, it points us to the way things don't always work out or go the way we are. Uh, the go, go the way we expect. Uh, Lent is a time of preparation and readiness, but also dependence and faith in the God that's actually giving us. Uh, it reminds us that we don't lead our own lives, but we actually depend on God to lead us. And uh, the book of John gives us these metaphors for how God leads us. Uh, John is is a great writer. He writes a historical narrative in the book of John, but he also writes kind of a poem. He opens up the book with a poem in the same way that the book of Genesis opened up with a poem, in the beginning God created. In the book of John, John opens up with a poem, in the beginning was the word. It's John like is a poet, and even though he's supposed to be writing this historical narrative that gives us these details of Jesus's life, he's also giving us a lot of poetry and pointing out these symbols and these metaphors. And Jesus himself uses these metaphors in these seven statements that we see. Uh, and in this statement, I am the light, he gives us one more metaphor to what he came here to do and who he is to us. Uh, Jesus becomes this li living metaphor for us. So uh, the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light? And why does he say it in this moment here? Now, uh, originally, when I was going to preach on this passage, I was actually not going to use that first section of John 8, where we get the story of this woman who's put on trial. Uh, and the reason I was actually avoiding that was because uh, if you're familiar with this passage and you've opened it up in your Bible, you might notice that there's some commentary at the beginning of John 8 where it says, like, it's, for me, when I first read it, I was like, it felt like police tape. Because it says, like, we don't know why this is here. We don't know when this was added. Like, it's kind of this weird part of scripture where we think it might have been added later. We think it might have been kind of discovered later. And we're actually unsure where it goes in the book of John. So we've kind of put it here at the beginning of John 8 as a placeholder. But there's kind of a shrug that the scholars and the people who put together biblical text have to say, because we don't know if it's here. And when I approach that, I get very scared, because I'm like, oh, I don't, like, I'm, I'm scared of this text, because I'm not sure 
if it belongs, I'm not sure how to analyze it if we're unsure. And it gets at this problem that we often have of the real complexity of the Bible. That uh, the reality is the Bible was compiled centuries after Jesus' life. It's been translated and explored and had to be rediscovered time and time again. And uh, sometimes, especially as Christians who are living in a modern time that's very different from the time of these people, we can be unsure on how to interpret and how to explore this text. And we can feel very, very far from knowing what to do. But uh, as I was reading this text, as I was uh, thinking about John 8 and the statement, I am the light, I was reminded of this quote by St. Augustine, who was a biblical author, he was a Catholic, uh, he was a member of the Catholic Church, he wrote beautiful books and literature on God. Um, and one thing he said was, he was thinking about the complexity of the Bible, and some of the, honestly, the changeability of it, the mutability of it, the ways that it's had to change, be reinterpreted, be retranslated. And one thing he said was, the same Holy Spirit that you know, inspired the biblical writers to put pen to paper and write the Bible is the same God that inspires the translators. It's the same God that, uh, that, that inspires the translators, the interpreters, all of this work that has gone into putting together the Bible. So one thing I like to think now is, is our exploration of God, our discovery of God is not dependent on us and our certainty on the Bible, or our ability to create this perfect kind of put together picture perfect image of the Bible. It's actually on God who inspires us to read it, to explore it. God holds us as we discover him in the text and as we discover him in this text. Uh, and the same God that held Adam in Genesis 1 as he put him together from dust is the same God that came in Jesus and held the children and brought them close to himself it's the same God that holds us today. Um, and our exploration, discovery, discovery, and certainty of him depends on him and not us. Which is why I, yeah, I'm excited to uh, explore this text. I think we see that theme of a God that sees us and holds us, actually, in this text, uh, in, in John 8. So, the statement, I am the light, is preceded by this really pretty like dramatic passage. It's a trial. Uh, Jesus is brought to be a, be a judge in a trial to pass a sentence on a woman. And uh, we see in verse four, uh, the, the Pharisees come to him and say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So uh, Jesus is brought into this situation where a woman is being accused, and they're trying to pass a sentence on her, trying to decide what do we need to do with this person. And we see Jesus has a very strange reaction. We get we get this reaction of Jesus as he basically says. I don't condemn you. But what I love about this passage is that there's all these questions that are going on behind the scene. So first of all, adultery is, a, is, is the accusation that, that is put on this woman. And I am no expert, but adultery is not a sin you do alone. 
Adultery is a sin that happens with multiple people. Um, and in the case of this text, when you look at the language, when you look at what's happening, this woman was not caught alone, and yet she's the only one brought to trial. So there's this question in the air of why is this woman alone in this act? Why is she caught alone? And it comes to the reason for this trial, right? The, the Pharisees brought this woman not because of their care for the law, not because of their care for righteousness, not because of their care for justice, but because they wanted to, to, to trap Jesus. They were using this woman as a pawn in their power games, right? Uh, and it's, it's kind of terrible. It's this really like dark and twisted way of using what God meant for good to do dark and terrible things. Uh, secondly, you know, it's strange the way they describe what the law of Moses commands them to do. Because it says, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. It actually doesn't. It says to stone anyone who's caught in this act. And there's this strange misapplication of the law. This, this weird, like, uh, uh, an over-exaggeration to certain populations, which we are not so unfamiliar with, right, when we look at our own criminal justice system. Right? There is this way of using the law not to actually make things go right, to not set things right or make things go the way God, God uh, asked them to, but instead to hurt, harm, and disparage. Uh, it's, a, it's a harsh, harsh thing. So we have this image of these men surrounding this woman, telling her that she is up for trial. Uh, and it leads us to this moment with Jesus. So, uh, I love how Jesus invites the Pharisees into, into uh, how Jesus invites the Pharisees to respond. We get this ending, right, in verse 11 where Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. And I think, you know, in our kind of like purity culture, uh, in, our, in our culture that's very like, we sometimes think, oh, Jesus was just saying that to the women, woman, right? But in reality, I think Jesus was inviting, was making that invitation of leaving the life of sin, not just to the woman, but to the Pharisees as well. I think that's what he's saying when he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first throw, to throw a stone at her. The, the Pharisees are engaging in this system that isn't working, that doesn't do any good to the woman, to them, or to Jesus. And he invites them to let go of that, to not throw stones, and invites them to, to look at themselves, and to look at the motivations of why they're doing what they do. So Jesus releases this woman and says, you, uh, he, he asks her, has anyone condemned you? And he, he comforts her with, with the statement, neither do I condemn you. Uh, in a moment, uh, in a moment of deep shame, darkness, and hardship, Jesus does not condemn her, but releases her and invites her into a life full of God and love. I love this text because I think it reveals to us what the light of Jesus does. This woman was exposed. Uh, the the Middle Eastern culture that we see Jesus is Jesus in is what is sometimes known as an honor-shame culture. And if you're, if you're East Asian, South Asian, and a lot of other cultures have these dynamics, 
of honor and shame, of like, it's really important to save face and to be held in honor. And sometimes the way that cultural forces push you into things is using shame, right? I'm sure many of us have had experiences with our mothers or our fathers where they kind of guilt us into doing something or kind of, you know, they, they apply the guilt button to help yeah. us to help us uh, go forward. And this honor-shame culture dynamic put this woman in a place of shame. She's being exposed in front of the community. In verse 2, we're told this happens not in a private place, not in a court of law or in, in an actual kind of private place, but in front of the temple courts. It's in the place of worship. This is not where, like, you know, that wasn't the place where these kind of trials are supposed to be taking place. And yet these Pharisees expose this woman. Uh, the light is shining on her. And yet what we see Jesus doing that in this moment is he changes what that light is doing. Instead of condemning her to death, he, said he releases her. He forgives her and he says, go. Uh, go now and leave your life of sin. And I think sometimes for me when I read that last line, uh, go now and leave your, leave your life of sin, I, I think I add a little thing at the end where I go, or else. And like, that's something that I'm adding. That's something that's coming out of like my own cultural biases, my own assumptions about God. But I don't think that or else is there. I think Jesus is just saying, go now and leave your life of sin. Like, come into the light of God. Come into life with me. Uh, that's what he says later in this passage. Whoever, uh, whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have a light of life. He's not threatening people. He's not, like, saying that I'm going to condemn you if you don't follow me. He's inviting people into life. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, Christian writer, a Catholic priest named Richard Rohr, and one of the ways that he describes sin, I think, is really helpful. He says, sin is what doesn't work. When God invites us to leave a sin, to leave a vice, to leave something, to leave something behind, he'll never ask us to leave something that isn't already not working, right? What, what God is inviting us to when we leave sin, like, uh, like Ronaldo preached on last week, it's leaving stuff that doesn't work, yeah. that is a cheap substitute for the love and light of God. Uh, it's leaving a place of condemnation and guilt into a life with God, a, a dependence on him to guide us where we need to go. Uh, and yeah, I think Jesus's non-judgment and non-condemnation in this passage revealed to us that he is a worthy light. Uh, he's a worthy light because he does two things. He shines his light on us personally, not with condemnation, but with acceptance and love, holding us, right? Holding us in, uh, in safety and security. But he also shines a light on the systems that don't work. He's shining a light on this like legal system in this passage that is prosecuting a woman without prosecuting the man that was involved in the crime, that is making this woman a public spectacle, not for justice, but for power games and trying to trap another yeah. person. Uh, he's shining a light on these things, and not to even condemn the Pharisees, but to also save them, to invite them out of the system. This, this type of light that reveals darkness, that kind of pushes away darkness, without like killing and destroying the perpetrators of that darkness, is what the gospel is about. 
uh, it's we see it in this kind of story of Acts, where God, where where uh, where two disciples are in a prison, and God brings down the prison, but without removing, without killing the jailer. Yeah. He takes down jails without killing jailers, oh. and it's one of my favorite things about the the justice of the gospel. Uh, A.W. Cowzo, who's a Christian writer, he says that God's justice and God's mercy, his judgment and forgiveness, are not at ends with each other, but they're one and the same. We sometimes view them as these two like faces of God, of like, you flip a coin and you might get the angry God or you might get the forgiving God. But in reality, they're, they're the same thing. Uh, and sometimes, it's I'm not going to lie, it's hard to see that. Like, we have a scope and a scale of God that can be hard to, to really see what, where is God merciful and where is God just. Mm -hmm. But in the scale of things, that there's a trust that we give to God uh, that I think helps us believe that his justice is his mercy. Mm -hmm. And that uh, when he gives mercy, it is actually his justice. Uh, and I think that's what it means to trust in the light of God to trust uh, in the God that knows what is right and wrong. Because what I love about this passage is that Jesus says, you judge by human standards, and I pass judgment on no one. So you would think in that preceding statement, you judge on human standards, he would follow that up with, I judge on godly standards. Like, being like, I judge in the right way. Because Jesus is the only one that can judge rightly, right? He, he was God-made flesh. He's the, he actually has the perspective to know what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus doesn't say, I judge by God's standards. He says, I judge no one. I don't pass a sentence. I won't condemn. I won't accuse. But instead, I judge no one. And that is what the gaze of God is like. You would think that the gaze of God can be the scary thing, this exposing thing, as we are face to face with our creator, the person that knows our thoughts, our deepest desires, our darkest secrets. And in that place of exposure like this woman was, as this spotlight is on us, we'd be afraid, right? Like it's a kind of a vulnerable position to be in. If you've ever been in a, like a, a close relationship where someone knows your darkest secrets, you know the ways that those can be weaponized yeah. against you. Yeah. And uh, your darkest shames can be the greatest weapons and daggers mm. to hurt and harm you. Mm. And yet God, Jesus, who knows who knows the darkest depths of this, of this person, of us. He looks at us, and he loves her and releases her. He says, I don't condemn you. There's no sentence. And that's the same way he looks at us. Uh, one of the, my, my favorite ways to start a time of prayer is, uh, is this statement that was written by this Indian Jesuit priest. And it says, behold the one beholding you. Uh, and it's this idea of like God is beholding us and we are beholding him. And at first, that's like a crazy thing that the, this, like, the infinite mass of God is looking at us. Like this, the one that created the stars, the one that set the, the earth on its spin and on its axis is staring us down. That's a, that could be like a kind of a huge big thing to think about. But the... the the quote goes like this, behold the one beholding you and smiling. And it's one of this, it's this beautiful image of a God that beholds us, that sees us for all that we are, our good and our bad, our faults and our strengths, and he smiles. 
He smiles. It's that Genesis 1 image of God saw that it was very good, that it was good, good. Uh, it's this image of God that sees us and smiles like a father. Uh, the same way that Jesus looked at this woman is the same way that the father looked at this woman. They stand together, right? That's what he says in this text. And in the same way, God looks at us and, and invites us uh, into his smile, his his smile, his gaze, his light that doesn't expose our, uh, doesn't expose our secrets into to to, to uh, take advantage of our vulnerability to love us. So, uh, with this light, with this light, uh, I believe we're being invited to walk with him in it. Uh, the thing that will light our way is not knowing right from wrong. Because the reality is we don't always know right from wrong. Uh, we, we make mistakes all the time. We make decisions that aren't what we thought they'd be. Uh, I know I've made decisions that I was so sure was the right thing to do in the moment, and then a couple days later, actually a couple seconds later, I'm like, oh, that was no, that was not, that was not the move. And it's this invitation to depend on Jesus to be our light. Because it's the true light, the light that actually sees things for what they are, uh, actually knows right from wrong. Uh, it's not our knowledge of scripture, it's not our knowledge of God, but it is our dependence on the light of the world, the, the real light of the world, uh, trusting that Jesus is guiding us. And even when it, when it looks like he's leading us to a really dark place, even when he's leading us to a cross, there's a trust in the light that knows right from wrong, that knows good from evil. Uh, it also kind of releases us from all these other kinds of lights. The Pharisees thought they were doing the right thing. Uh, the Pharisees thought, like, hey, this is a black and white case. This is this woman was caught in adultery. We need to, you know, this is justice. They also got the added bonus of taking down Jesus. But in their obsession with right and wrong, in their obsession with knowing exactly what to do, they kind of were in the darkness the whole time. And I think we're kind of released from that. Uh, there's actually one more thing I wanted to, to talk about in this text. Uh, now, you know, biblical texts were written on scrolls. Uh, they didn't have copy machines, obviously, so every time they had to write something, they had to recopy it down, right? So in this passage, twice, uh, there's this thing that's mentioned twice, uh, this idea of the temple courts. In verse 2, it says that Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, and then later in verse 20, they repeat it again, that just by the way, guys, he's in the temple courts. Uh, where the place, where the offerings were put. Uh, I love that. What John is repeating this idea just to, to reiterate the setting of this moment. Uh, because he wants, he wants us to know where this trial is taking place and where Jesus' words are taking place. Now, the temple courts were obviously the place of Jewish worship. It's where people would come and congregate to connect with God. And I think... John is reiterating this fact that Jesus is in the temple courts for, for a specific reason. Because at the, in verse 20, he mentions that this is near the place where the offerings were, were put. Uh, offerings were these things that people brought to the temple to, uh, to yeah, they were, they were brought to the temple to, um, they were brought to the temple to give to God and to kind of contribute to, the temple of God to keep its upkeep. 
Uh, it could be things like animals, it could be things like wheat, it could be things like wine, but it's represented actual literal love. And what we're seeing is Jesus is giving this speech to the Pharisees who are collecting this wealth and using it to put on this false trial mm. instead of helping people connect with God. And Jesus is exposing a light on systems that don't work. Mm. And I think Jesus invites us to do the same. Uh, that we expose systems that we don't work, that we speak out against things that aren't good and right. But we do that without condemning people or, or punishing people or seeking retribution. And that's what I think it means for us to follow the light of God. So uh, as we begin to close, we can uh, prepare for communion. I, I want to invite us in this season of Lent to, to accept the light of Jesus, mm. to realize that he is the thing that will guide, illuminate, and lead us. It won't be wealth, leaders, or our plants. Uh, Jesus is the light and the light alone that leads us to life. So let me pray for us and uh, enter us into a time of communion. Jesus, thank you for your word to us, your light to us. I pray that uh, as we hear this word, uh, we would see your face on us, uh, your face on us, loving us, not condemning us, and smiling upon us, the gaze that sees us for all, all of us who we are, uh, and sees us with deep and profound love. Uh, thank you for your love and thank you for your light. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.